So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of Inside the Mind of Champions. I hope you're safe and well wherever you're listening to this episode from. I've just returned from a wonderful week's break on the Cornish coast, running along some of those stunning coastal paths, attempting to surf for a microsecond or two with the kids and generally reflecting on the challenges of the last 12 months. It's so good to take a step back. I find it hard to take breaks. Part of the script running in my head is that I need to work hard and with loads of webinar requests and you know, business challenges in the recent months, it's been non-stop. But I've challenged myself to reconfigure my week now. So that break was a huge success to help me to get a clear game plan for the months ahead. While I was away, I managed to gather around with some mates to watch the England football team take on Italy in the European Cup final. This seemed like it was going to be the fairy tale win, but sadly it turned into another penalty nightmare. We had so much hope, but sadly the trophy wasn't coming home after all. It was actually going to Rome. So massive congratulations to my Italian listeners. In the 48 hours that followed, my disappointment turned to anger and then shame. The backlash of racist abuse that Rashford, Sancho and Saka received was nothing short of a disgrace. These wonderfully talented players that had played so well to get us to the final had the courage to step up under that immense scrutiny and pressure to take those all-important penalties and they were saved by the keeper. I'm glad to see that some of the perpetrators of the social media abuse have been arrested. I only hope that forces the social platforms to remove the anonymity of users so that people who post hate and abuse can be held directly accountable in the future. I saw that one of the keyboard warriors who'd abused Marcus Rashford had actually benefited from his own personal campaign to get free school dinners for kids during lockdown. It's an absolute joke. I was tempted to start piling in with loads of Twitter and LinkedIn discussions and debates myself but I really needed to take a mental and physical break away from social media to reflect and clear my head so hopefully today's episode provides a little bit more perspective. As I walked the coastal paths I did reflect on how these noisy few have had such a powerful impact on society. I'm very proud to be English but the recent behaviour of our politicians 
and these latest racist stories have raised some questions in my mind. I'm not even sure those making these racist comments understand what it means to be English. After all, we're a tiny island that's been invaded for thousands of years by the Vikings, the Celts, the Romans. We're by definition diverse, certainly in terms of our DNA. And then we add to that the labour migration from India and the West Indies that helped us rebuild our country after the war. And you have a true melting pot of cultures. A search on the ancestry research suggests that the average UK inhabitant is only 36% Anglo-Saxon. And then when we drill back into that even further, we find that Anglo-Saxon DNA itself comes from northern Germany and southern Scandinavia. So while our DNA and population may well be diverse, that doesn't mean we're inclusive. That remains a choice and takes a whole level of compassion, courage and open-mindedness that some people can't even imagine. Sport brings together so many people from diverse backgrounds and there's so much passion involved. This is why sport's addictive, it's unpredictable, it's head-to-head but above all it's human. None of us have the perfect strategy under pressure and sadly the final over in cricket or the penalty shootout in football can define careers one way or the other. To criticise the penalty takers, technique is fine, but to connect the result to the colour of their skin is irrelevant and unacceptable. The outpouring of support after the initial racist abuse surfaced has been incredibly positive. I really hope the vile comments of the few will fuel the condemnation of racism in our society and in time we'll see this as another key cultural reference point in building a more inclusive society. In my view, this team has conducted itself brilliantly under the guidance of Gareth Southgate. And if you've listened to podcast episode 33, you'll understand his integrity and philosophy around growing brave young leaders. While we didn't lift the trophy on this occasion, there's definitely cause for optimism in English football. And once we've dusted ourselves down, we can look forward to the World Cup with excitement rather than dread. I can't even imagine the emotions that Gareth has been through in the last week. I'm sure he was praying for a positive result in normal and even in extra time. But sadly, history repeated itself and we narrowly missed out on penalties. In our interview with Gareth a few years back, he reflected on his own penalty miss from Euro 96 and his words hint at what the current players have ahead of them. I think the aftermath of that for me um, in 96 was perspective, um, sack loads of mail, some of which were critical and I read them all, which was probably foolish, but I wanted to see what was there. The majority of which were supportive and many of which put my life into perspective, people who had a disabled child or who'd suffered a bereavement. And again, that reality of life that we are in a sport. In England we have a huge focus on sport and particularly on football Um, and so sometimes your self-worth as a person becomes your performance on the field when actually there's a lot more to us Um, and great people who've sadly passed away if I think of somebody like Bobby Robson who was you know undoubtedly a fantastic manager but I was very conscious that when he died, people talked about 
him as a person more than him as a, a manager. Um, and I think that's as we'll all be judged in the end. Um, but as an athlete going through your career, you do um, judge yourself on, on your performance. And I guess perspective for me, um, going back to play for my club, I found quite easy because I was in that warm environment that your club provides where you make a mistake, they pick you up, you're with close friends. If you play poorly on a Tuesday, you have another game on a Saturday. Jamie Carragher spoke very well about it recently. With the international game, I had to wait three months and then I've got one match with a month after it again. And I knew any mistake I made, it would be, he hasn't recovered from Euro 96. And I struggled with that for, for two or three months with England. And I also played with injuries I shouldn't have because I just wanted to get out there and play. Um, so my performance wasn't as it should have been. Um, but you come through it, you have to work your way through it, otherwise you just disappear. And I hadn't worked for eight or nine years at that point just to, to disappear. Well, sack loads of letters may have been replaced by sack loads of tweets, but the sentiment remains the same. The players are more than their performance. They are more than their penalty miss. In Gareth, they have the perfect role model and leader to guide them out of this crater that they feel that they're in. How we process and code emotions into memories is absolutely critical so that we're not blinded by them when the same opportunity presents itself in the future. Our brain will always scan for emotional warning signs and it's bid to keep us safe as we approach new challenges. Processing an emotion with a never again flag on it isn't useful for any longer term performance and we need a much more positive reframing to be able to approach the same situation again in the future. We can almost visualise this as three psychological pathways ahead of the players. The first one feels like this was just too much of an emotional setback. They'll shirk the opportunity to take penalties in the future, they'll avoid it wherever they can that will eat away at them, the guilt and then, you know, knowing that they're not being courageous for their team, whether it's at club level or international, and they'll ultimately fade away. They'll blame the system, they'll blame someone and they'll end up living with regrets. Option two is that they attack their training back in their clubs, but can't stop picking at that mental scar of the Euros and they gradually become more conscious, more hesitant. They tighten up and lose that creative spark. It's a slower decline, but eventually they listen to the critics too much and lose their passion and their performance. And option three is that they're able to reframe the situation with this winning mindset. They see it as something that they can learn from and they can change the ending of their story. They feel empowered and in control. This isn't who they are with a full stop. This is them with a comma and the next part is about to be written. This isn't every part of them. This isn't fixed. They can use this setback to fuel their ambition, to train, to learn to find personal mastery. They can even set goals of becoming England's most successful penalty taker ever. And with Saka at just 19 years old, that's definitely a possibility. Sometimes we need to look outside our own world and our own sport and our own industry for inspiration. And I remember that great quote from the NBA legend Michael Jordan, who said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 
26 times I'd been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. And he didn't do too badly either. So at the end of his career, he had a free throw percentage of 83.5%. So if we convert that into penalties in football, Ronaldo's got a percentage penalty rate of 84% success and Lionel Messi has a percentage success rate of 77%. So maybe Saka in the 2035 season that he retires could be way up with Michael Jordan and uh, ahead of everybody else. So that story is yet to be written. I'm sure there are thousands of analysts reviewing every inch of every kick over the last few weeks. But for me, the psychological elements of recovering from setbacks are much more useful to reflect on because they're so important for all of us. And I'm sure we can all relate to those moments of setbacks and how painful they can be. And we've not even experienced the media outcry that comes from it. But you've heard me before speak about the work of Martin Seligman and positive psychology. And Seligman created the three P's of recovering from setbacks, which were personalization, permanence and pervasiveness. If a player believes that this is typical of their lives, this is just what happens to me, then they've personalised it rather than seeing it as a common issue that happens in football, happens to everybody and that anyone can experience at any time in their career. They take that personal view. The second thing is that they think it's affecting them in total. So the pervasiveness, it's spreading across their whole personality. Now they're a failed son a failed brother, a failed friend, and it could affect them not only outside their sport, but it could go on. And that's the third element of permanence, that this isn't something that happened in a particular moment in Wembley at that specific moment in time because of their preparation or their technique or something that was in their control. This is something that's going to last forever, and that can be incredibly debilitating. So when we think about recovering from our own setbacks, we need to not personalise them, not see them as pervasive across all of our different identities and domains of our life. And we need to see them as flexible and not permanent. We can change the story, we can grow, we can learn, we can adapt and we can master these skills. Now, England have Ian Mitchell, one of the world's top sports psychologists, in charge and I'm sure he'll be creating the best environment for the players and coaches to be able to process the emotions of what went on last week. What goes on in the next month to process the last game for me is as critical as the next tournament camp to build up to the next one. We really need a solid foundation to build on in these situations and no amount of inspiration in the tournament build-up can cover a deep-seated fear or frustration that was never confronted from some time back. Great coaches aren't just there for the highlights and the pictures on the front of the newspaper. They're all in every day for all of their team. I'll never forget the legendary Australian hockey coach Rick Charlesworth telling me that the key to great coaching was to trouble the comfortable and to comfort the troubled. I love that and it's echoed by Sue Campbell, who's the current head of women's football at the FA. I guess there are two words that, that, that come to mind, really, whether you, you're in a boardroom or, or you're coaching an individual athlete, and the two words are support and challenge. You know, you, your job as a coach is to be the place 
that you go to when things aren't very good or you've had a go at something that hasn't worked very well. It's a safe place to go. It's a place to go where you feel supported, valued, um, and where you know you can have some good reflection and, and thought about what happens. But it's also a place where you know you're going to get challenged. It's not always a comfortable place. Um, and, and I think as a coach, you have to find that very fine balance between being the support, but being willing to provide that challenge about behaviour, about performance, about what went wrong. And the way you manage all that comes back to your ability to communicate. So as a coach, you've got to be a really sensitive communicator. And you've got to know when to take a strong position and be clear. And you've got to know when to step back and be supportive. But to me, coaches are, by their nature, good communicators. They're, they're very supportive individuals but they're also people that are challenging you to be the best that you can be. Gareth and his team will no doubt be debriefing the tournament now the dust has settled and they'll be working out who needs to be challenged and who needs the support. Both of these factors will need to work seamlessly into their Premier League teams to be effective. They are also England players while they are club players, but clearly the partnership between Gareth and the Premier League managers will be important to make sure that this seamless transition of support and challenge works well. One thing that Gareth has done well is take control of the culture within the team and I think this will be the most powerful antidote to any of the negative criticism and abuse that has come in from the outside. I often visualise this as a leader blowing up a balloon in front of their face with all the great cultural elements expanding out from the centre. But it's being forced against the natural air pressure that's trying to squash it down from the outside in and to shrink down that bubble, that balloon. This is a constant battle, but one that lies at the heart of Gareth's skills. One of the experts that Gareth brought into the back room is Owen Eastwood, Owen's a friend of mine, a Kiwi with a professional training as a top sports lawyer in a London law firm. But he also has a fascination for heritage, culture and identity. Owen's widely respected as a leading thinker in the area of team culture and his brand new book, Belonging, is a must read. I've worked with Owen on the Pro Tears Culture Project for the South African cricket team. And if you're a regular listener to the podcast, You'll have heard the philosophy of Ubuntu, which had such a powerful impact on the cricket team and their performance. I recently caught up with Owen to explore some of the key things from his new book, and he shared a few insights into his work with Gareth and the England team. We hear a lot about processes and goals and KPIs in teams, but really there are three key areas of emotional competitive advantage within teams. Firstly, do we know who we are? and why we're different as a, t as a team. This is all around our identity and it gives people a chance to feel part of it, to feel engaged, and they can see their own life story in the team story. Maybe we're the underdogs, maybe we're the creative team, or maybe we're the multicultural team that has much more diversity to harness than any of our competitors. Whatever the identity story is, 
it can add value from a performance perspective. The second area of emotional competitive advantage is purpose. Who are we? Who does our team represent? Why does our team exist? Who do we make a difference to? And Gareth has spoken out about bringing joy to England and the England fans after a brutal period of lockdown. And then there's that interpersonal climate of understanding, trust and belonging. We are truly working together on this and our personal relationships are galvanised by our team culture. As Owen now explains, these factors always exist in a team, whether they're good or bad. It's just whether we invest in them to improve our performance. That's the key. Identity, I think, is quite misunderstood. Every single group of human beings who are together have a sense of identity. It is not an optional thing you decide to go with or, or not. If we have a small sports team, of a kids team, for example, they have an, an idea of I their identity. They have an idea of who we are, how we do things, what makes us better or worse than them. We always are forming these ideas about our groups, our families, our nations. We're hardwired to think quite positively normally about our groups, but we are always creating an identity story. So it's not a question of whether we want to build an identity or not. It's really about whether we want to lead on this or not. And, you know, in belonging, I share the story about the England football team, which for a very long time didn't speak about its identity internally. So what happened is externally the media and fans had their own version of who you are, who they were. And it was around the ideas of being a bit selfish, not really caring so much about doing well, being technically inferior to opponents, being mentally weak, not being able to win a penalty shootout. And what happened is that the players themselves, they always have this identity story and it was being fed externally and in a very negative way. And it hasn't really been until the last few years, and particularly under Gareth Southgate, where the team has decided, you know what, we'll take ownership of our identity. We won't let other people tell us who we are. We're going to determine who we are, and we're going to build a vision of what it looks like. And that's a fundamental difference. So with identity, it's not something we go with or we don't go with. People will always have it. I used to work in a law firm for a long time. People had very strong views on what our identity was. But it was something which was left to the people, wasn't really shaped at all by the leadership. And I, I do believe that's a really missed opportunity. The English media are so powerful in shaping public opinion, so coaches and managers have a choice. Do we let them tell their story unchecked and hope that we can shield the players from ever finding out anything they say and hope that we play well enough? Or do we design our culture from the inside out? and tell them what we stand for so they can write about that. The second approach is brave, strategic, and desperately needs to be authentic. This isn't a media briefing. We can't say one thing and then play like another. But I really feel that Gareth hasn't just harnessed the talent and the combinations in the team to build consistency. He's also created an inspirational group of role models that the whole of our nation can look up to. Now, sadly, they weren't able to put the penalty shootout to bed as they did against Colombia in the 2018 World Cup. But they definitely became a strong, cohesive team, full of courage and full of passion. I'm not an expert on Gareth's substitutions or his football strategy, but from a culture perspective, I know something is building momentum 
and that bodes really well for future performances. Our team cultures are truly tested in adversity. So let's take a moment to reflect. How would your team at work or in sport respond if a team member made a big mistake or was racially abused? What would you say and what would you do at a personal level, not just calling HR and having them deal with it? The way we respond to this crisis sets the tone for how our team treat each other in the future. I'd love to take a moment to invite you into our members club. This is a pioneering digital coaching experience, which is currently inspiring hundreds of ambitious people to think, lead and perform better. When you join, you'll have access to over a thousand world-class performance strategies on 74 high performance themes. So if you're an ambitious coach, executive or entrepreneur, use the code podcast 50 in the checkout at sportingedge.com forward slash membership and you'll get your first month half price. Here's a little bit more information about what's included. During times of uncertainty and pressure, your mindset will be the key to your success. Sporting Edge members have unlimited personal access to hundreds of video insights and performance strategies to accelerate their personal and professional success. This is your chance to get powerful weekly micro-lessons from the world's best thinkers and performers from elite sport. You'll be able to connect with a global network of entrepreneurs, coaches and senior executives on webinars, discussion forums and events. Become a Sporting Edge member and get access to the world's best coaches on demand. For more information, visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com. It's so easy to look at others and cast judgment, but I think the power in this situation is for us to reflect on what we will say to support our people, what we would say in the media or to external stakeholders if this situation presented itself for us. It's not quite so easy when the spotlight moves on to us. But what's happened to the England football team over the last two weeks is a great metaphor for the way we should try and handle leadership in our own teams. Again, I don't know exactly what was going on within the England team, but this last week could have put a seismic crack in the team culture. I'm sure it hasn't. And if anything, it's probably helped them to become stronger together. This only happens if your shared purpose is stronger than the cliques and personal agendas within the team. Another factor here is whether the team respects each other as individuals, not just how they play. In some weak teams, the three guys who missed the penalties would become outcasts as their performance has brought shame to the group. This is not what happens in high-performing teams. Even though we naturally form subgroups within our teams, Dr. Joe Candola, an expert in bias and inclusion now explains that being socially excluded in an outgroup negatively affects performance. So as human beings, we naturally will gravitate towards people that are like us or that we feel we have something in common with, whether it be our gender, our, 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 our ethnicity, or whether we support a particular team at sport, or we've got a hobby in common, or whatever. But so in groups, we form in groups. We we try to get surround ourselves with people that are like us on whatever the relevant dimension is in that context. Um, 
in the workplace, we see these in-groups and out-groups forming. So um, it could be around gender, it could be around race, it could be actually just that the, all these people like uh, support a particular football team or whatever. When you're in the in-group, you feel protected, you are safer. People will jump in to support you if you are challenged by other people from an out-group. And your contributions are remembered. So if you do a piece of work, people in your group remember it. The in-group may remember it. Often the in-group is the more powerful group as well. The out-group is a minority group. If you're in the out-group, your contributions aren't remembered. You have to work harder to prove yourself. Um, and you feel alienated. You are not included in the, the kind of informal network, the informal conversations that are going on. And so therefore, if you're not included in that, you don't necessarily have the information you can do to do your job as well. And as a consequence, therefore, you may not perform as well because you're being excluded from some critical pieces of information. So there are massive consequences to these in-groups and out-groups. Um, psychologically, that has a very detrimental point on uh, impact on the individual I feel like I don't belong my contributions are not valued I'm working so hard here and I feel I'm achieving as much as uh, my colleagues are but but people are overlooking me if I make a mistake it is noticed more whereas their mistakes are forgotten that has a huge impact on people and they're either going to opt out and just sit and coast in their job which is not good for an organization it's not that's not what you want out of your people you want them all performing at their optimal level um, or they're going to leave and you've potentially let somebody walk out the door that could be a huge talent and a huge resource to you. So it, it has an impact on the organisation, but it also has an impact on the individual. It, it starts undermining their confidence. They start questioning whether this is really, am I really um, not good at this? And actually then their performance goes down, which reinforces the belief that they're not so good, but it's because they haven't had access to the information. So they get caught in a, a real a spiral of actually, is this my fault? Has a, is a, has a major impact on people. Um, and it's the, it's the leader of that team and the members of that team responsibility to spot when they're networking or speak, who they're speaking to and how often they're speaking to and are certain people being excluded from these teams. It's their responsibility to pull them in, not for the people on the outskirts, in the outgroup, to try and get their way in. So for any team, subgroups will form naturally based on where you're from, different personalities. Maybe there's the younger gang or the group that get together for a particular set of interests or pastimes. That's very normal, but we need to work hard so that everyone feels valued and included in our teams so that they can contribute their very best. This issue could be heightened for those of us in the business world by the in-group who are back in the office after the COVID-19 lockdowns and the out-group who are still working from home. All leaders will need to consider how they get that same sense of belonging and feeling of value, which comes from the in-group, even though you may be still working from home. Proactivity is the key here, because when setbacks happen, great teams pull those who've been suffering even closer to the centre of the team. For them, the people are as important as the performance. While some people may see different factions within the England team split by club, age or even race, Gareth's approach has been the opposite, totally inclusive, building a diverse team where everyone feels welcome and valued. Owen now explains how the team has reinforced this rich heritage and diversity of the England team to help every one of the current players, irrespective 
of race or religion or age to know they're a respected and valued member of the team. I think the England football team's identity story is very inclusive. I think partly that's the manner and the approach of Gareth as the you know, ultimate leader of the team. He treats everybody the same. He is relational. He wants to know everybody and their stories and backgrounds and he shares his own openly with them. So I think that really does contribute hugely to an inclusive environment where you can see that your leader actually cares about you and is interested in you and certainly isn't favouring a clique, for example. Uh, but the other part of it is that the team itself uh, has built its identity story up over the last few years. It's gone into spaces which hadn't really been discussed before. You know, Viv Anderson being the first um, England uh, player of colour. Laurie Cunningham has been someone who's been reintroduced to the players of today, a really, really important figure. He actually played for England under 21, a year before Viv played for the England senior team. He was an incredible flamboyant player for West Bromwich Albion. He got traded, transferred across to Real Madrid. Had a, quite an amazing career in many ways and tragically was killed in a, in a car accident in Spain and, and, and still as a young man, still playing. So by bringing these stories of these ancestors before them, um, you know, and, and including some of the, you know, the Bobby Charltons of the world and the Jackie Milburns and Tom Finney and all these, bringing them all together and showing that all of these people wore the same shirt as us. They all left their own legacy and they're all people that we should aspire to emulate. The legacy of those past players was based on their character, not their skin colour. And those human stories will draw on the courage, skill and selflessness of their ancestors, all of which show the way for the current players to follow. Every one of our businesses has its stories, its heroes and its villains. But do we actively use stories to drive inclusion and belonging? It may seem like a nice to have, but in moments of pressure and setback, this is the emotional glue which binds the people together. If people feel protected, they feel included and they feel cared for in their darkest hour, then they have nothing to fear moving forward and they will commit and they will rise again. The most empowering thing for England players to think about is the momentum that the team's built in the last few years. To even expect our national team to win a major international tournament is remarkable given where we've come from. So these setbacks that we've experienced over the last week are just the next chapter in the story of this team and generating that feeling of ownership and empowerment to write their own story is going to be a fundamental pillar of their high performance going forward. Setbacks can provide such a visceral and immediate reaction. Gareth said in one of his press conferences this week that he felt like his whole stomach had been ripped out. Just like the grieving process, that intense sense of loss will definitely fade in time, but it needs to be replaced by a burning desire to go again, to improve and to reach even higher peaks together. This is something that the All Blacks have harnessed so well in their long-term thinking and philosophy, as Owen Eastwood now explains. One of the ideas I talk about when it comes to this deep connection between people and the deep sense of belonging is the Maori idea of whakapapa. But one thing I've learned is that this idea is actually quite universal. A lot of different cultures have something similar that they speak about. 
But the idea is quite simple really, that each of us are part of an unbreakable chain of people going back in time to our very first ancestor, you know, our origin story. And not only going back in time, but our arms are interlinked. They're unbreakable. But also into the future. So we're part of this unbreakable chain of people that goes to the end of time. And if you think about it from a family point of view, we go all the way back to our first ancestors, whatever way you would understand that. Um, for me, my arms are interlocked with my father, even though he passed away when I was five. That's an unbreakable bond that we have. Um, I have two children and they're with me now and our arms are interlinked, but they're also interlinked with their children and my great-grandchildren. But the All Blacks use exactly the same frame for how they think about the team. In 1893 was their origin story. And there's, the shirt has, not just metaphorically, I think they feel like it's literal, has been passed down each of those teams all the way to now. And the metaphor is that the sun slowly moves down this chain of people, revealing each in turn. And when the sun is shining on you, that's the moment when you're alive and you're performing. And it's incumbent upon you to inherit this culture and live it, and then leave the best legacy you can to strengthen this tribe, this group of people, and then in time pass it on to those who come after us. And through this idea, this expression, you have the sense of immortality in many ways. And I think a lot of people find that very, very reassuring in a world which is in many ways very impermanent and feel, feels that way. I've shared this philosophy of fucker papa with many of my corporate clients. They're locked into this short-term financial reporting but want to refocus their business in the long term and have a strong ethical and sustainable brand. Balancing the idea of this long-term ethical legacy and the short-term personal accountability can be a really tricky one. But I think this philosophy of this unbreakable chain of people is so powerful to visualize. We all stand together, we learn from the past and it's our job to pass on our wisdom to future generations in our business. But while we're in the spotlight, while we're in the sunlight, we have to hold ourselves and each other accountable to the very, very best standards we possibly can so that we can move forward and deliver a better future. So if we're not delivering those high performance standards in the short term, we're never gonna create that great legacy in the long term. And I love the way that's framed by the All Blacks. So moving back to football, while England's focus has rightly been on those few minutes of the painful penalties, I'm sure Gareth and his team will soon start to consider how this team grows from the experience how their shirts will be passed on to the next group who are fortunate enough to wear the three lions in the next challenge and the next chapter. I'm sure the vast majority of this young team will be in their prime for the World Cup at the end of 2022 in Qatar. And thanks to the leadership of Gareth, the inclusive and supportive culture of the team and the resilience of the individual stars, we could have even more reason to dream. I truly hope that every one of the players who missed a penalty gets a rousing welcome back onto the field as their clubs kick off a new Premier League season. That way, we show the scumbags that sent those evil comments on social media that hate and racism will never prevail. If you'd like to see Gareth, Joe, Sue or Owen's full interviews that we've translated into a whole range of of practical tips to build high performance in your own environment, then come over to sportingedge.com, set up your own personal membership 
and use the code PODCAST50 in the checkout and you'll get a special offer as a podcast listener to access all of our content and join our community, which will help you to think and perform at the next level. I'd be really grateful if you could share this episode in your social feeds. And if you tag me into the message, you might just get a pleasant surprise. Until next time, keep well and see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.